0: The following podcast contains explicit language.
1: It's Thursday, January 19th, 2017. From Slate, it's the gist. I am Mike Pesca. A couple more hearings today on The Hill. The Hill. Yes, I summer on the Cape. I groundhog day on the knob. And we will get to America's new favorite comedy team, Franken and Perry. Did you enjoy meeting me? (laughs) I... I hope you are as much fun on that dais as you were on your couch. Uh, well. <laughs> may, may I rephrase that, sir? Please. 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 Oh, my Lord. Perry went on to say they just had their Saturday Night Live moment. But if that were true, his future boss would have tweeted about how unfunny it was. Sad. I don't want to talk about the picks who are being vetted right now, right now, meaning I will talk about them in the spiel. Now I want to talk about people who may be picks. Let's take the FDA. Two names floated include Balaji Srinivasan, who uh, runs a Bitcoin company. Now, mind you, the FDA is usually run by doctors, medical doctors. So we have this smart guy, Bitcoin guy, not a doctor. And the other guy is Jim O'Neill, another Silicon Valley guy. He is on the board of the Seasteading Institute, a Peter Thiel-backed venture to create new societies at sea where governments can't touch them. Here's his idea about the FDA. He wants to approve drugs, not once they're proved safe but a little before they're proved safe. Here's what he says. We should reform FDA so that it's approving drugs after their sponsors have demonstrated safety and let people start using them at their own risk, but not much risk of safety. Not much risk. The new FDA could cure cancer, could cause cancer. Hopefully a less bad form of cancer. Not much risk. The old way where, you know, drugs were safe. What kind of thrill is there in that? I think this guy gets the relationship America wants with its drugs. It's like mystery shot on ladies' night. Could get you drunk. Could be bleach. Small risk, not much risk. And then there's David Galernter. He's a Yale computer scientist. He's a genius. He's also kind of a madman. I've been reading this guy for years. He writes tons of op-eds. I was going to read you guys one that he wrote in the Wall Street Journal a couple months ago, but then I figured, oh, why torture you? So he could be Trump's choice for White House science advisor. Here's what he was writing in the journal a couple weeks ago. He said of Hillary Clinton, her special talent is the verbal kick in the groin of a secret service man or state trooper who has the nerve to talk to her if she were merely human. She is no mere rock star. She is Hillary the queen. Why do we insist on women in combat, but not the NFL? Because we take football seriously. That's no joke. That's the sad truth. That was him writing, but also me saying, and then he went on to say, Mr. Obama, as the first black president was impeachment proof. Also asserted, and this whole op-ed, his whole style is never to prove, just to assert. The schools are corrupt and the universities rotten to the core and everyone has known it since the 1980s. This antipathy to the academy is why the Washington Post called him anti-intellectual, which got a lot of his supporters in a tizzy. Okay, maybe it's the wrong phrase. The man is a genius. He's also kind of a loon and he absolutely hates higher education. He's driven mad by feminism. Here he is writing in the Weekly Standard in the mid-aughts, Our schools teach history ideologically. They teach the message, not the truth. They teach history as if males and females have always played equal roles. They are propaganda machines. He makes this assertion about race. The United States accomplished the amazing feat of virtually extinguishing race prejudice in a single generation between the late 50s and the early 80s. We teach our children from kindergarten up that America still struggles with prejudice, when they can see with their own eyes that prejudice in favor of approved minorities and women is everywhere, he speaks of the cultural mainstream's real prejudice against white boys. Galerntor is smart. He's an inspiration. You know, he had his hand blown off by a package sent by the Unabomber, but he says some wild out there stuff. I remember a book he wrote in 1997, and he said he flat out hates Sesame Street. Hate Sesame Street. Sesame Street depicts women as repairmen. His words, but never housewives. Sesame Street. Hates it. Well, Donald Trump once also tangled with Cookie Monster and Elmo. I think we have a clip of that. Well, that's because he'd rather have a puppet as president of no the puppet. United States. No puppet. And it's pretty clear. You're the puppet. It's pretty clear you won't. On the show today, Mnuchin, Perry, Panuchin, Mary. But first, Nick Thune, comedian and measured man of bearded countenance. Nick Foon is a good guy. In fact, he's such a good guy that he's branded himself as such. His new hour-long stand-up special premieres on the NBC digital comedy platform, CISO, on uh, December 22nd. Half of my comedy guests have been uh, promoting CISO specials, and they're all funny. It's a good net. What the hell is CISO? Hey, Nick.
0: Yeah, hey. <laughs> hey, hey, you know, CISO is, yeah, it's what you said, the NBC thing. 16 years old, I got my driver's license, borrowed my mom's car, drove straight to Claire's, and said, put some fucking holes in my ears. Give me some earrings. And now here I am, a 36-year-old man, 20 years later, with holes in my ears. There's no small group for that. Other guys my age dealing with the same thing. So, was stand-up the
1: first form of comedy that you went into? Did you try to do sketch or improv or anything?
0: You know, actually, the first live performance was a sketch, in a sense, where I, at an intermission of of my, at the time, my cover band, I reenacted a scene from Footloose. Uh Uh-huh. The scene in the barn where he he gets there and he gets out of his beetle and... He's, sl- he's like turns into this dance number and uh, I had like the whole thing. I had a fake car stereo that I put up tape. What was it and- too? What was the song in that? Uh,
1: it wasn't holding out for No, time, it was,
0: was a it? Kenny Loggins song yeah. though. It was the other one.
1: Yeah. The other Loggins. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: But then I didn't even really try When When I was in Seattle, I wasn't really doing stand. I was going to like poetry open mics and acting as if I was going to go up and read a poem and then just kind of talk about my, pr- you know, like kind yeah. of go off and. Like it's kind of a sound check joke that I do sometimes where I'm I'm like check, check, check. And then as if I'm talking to someone like, Yeah, my mom you know, she can call me for like three days. Test one. <laughs> I know, maybe it's because I don't, you know, you know, you like, you know, I do like this stupid, deep kind of exposing myself sort of things.
1: But you do know, I think we've all learned that comedy where they don't expect the comedy is a lot easier than when it's a comedy club and everyone yep. says, "Here's the funny guy." So if you're doing a sketch with your cover band or during slam poetry, they might hate it, but the people there who don't hate it probably love you more than anyone in a comedy club could ever love you.
0: And that's how I fell my f- I fell on my face a lot when I when I started going to shows that were. F- comedy yeah i realized oh these people aren't surprised by what i'm doing yeah they're expecting more actually
1: (laughs) you can get huge laughs at a eulogy but the problem is (laughs) you got to know the dead guy um so you did mention that like a lot of your friends were into sports and you weren't as into sports so that sounds like you weren't uh different or an outsider you got to choose the group of friends and you didn't choose the sports guys
0: Well, they lived within like five houses of me. Okay. These like five guys thrust upon you. The the (laughs) day I moved into my house, I went into this, my backyard and there was this guy, Tom, who ended up playing football for the air force. So, you know, it's like the first guy I met was athlete of the year at at my high school. And so I was kind of trying to fit in with them until I was 16. I didn't, I, I didn't really realize that it was okay not to fit in with them and that they might like me if, even if I'm not interested in the same things as them
1: but you always got along with them yeah even if they you, you realize maybe at 16 or 17 they weren't in your uh, in the wheelhouse of they your did interests. pick
0: on me there was a moment and i actually gone through this with a therapist at one point huh and he gave me an interesting perspective that i think is kind of what yes people tell you but there's a moment we were walking down the street when we were probably 12 and it was all six of us in the summer and somebody yelled out now and they all ran it was a planned ditch, is oh. what they call it, where everybody knew that they were going to ditch me, and they went and ran in the bushes, and I went home devastated. You know, it was like five houses down. I got home, my dad, who, you know, my dad who would walk into anything for me. Just they're never in- invited into our house again. You know, and then one of the boys came back like, "Hey, where's Nick?" And he's like, "You think you're going to treat him like that?" You know, and and then yeah. everything was fine. It really hurt my feelings, and obviously, I carried into it, carried into my 30s. But when I brought it up to this therapist, he said have you ever thought that it wasn't that they were ditching you to make fun of you? They were actually doing it because they thought that you were the only one in the group that could handle it and maybe even like it like a joke. Like Nick loves getting joked, you know, like Nick oh. loves it when people joke with him. So they thought it was a fun thing to involve me. And in, whereas at the time I took it, like they're always fucking with me and never, you know, respecting me or something. But yeah, the, when the therapist said that for the first time, I kind of did let go of it. Like, Yeah, could have been that way, actually. Maybe even if they knew it or not. That shows that a therapist
1: doesn't have actual insight, but believable lies are just as good for (laughs) the psyche. Well, he's a way that, that's the real explanation. (laughs) He's
0: an unlicensed therapist, by the way. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which I did try and, he is. And another comedian was going to him and they said, hey, kind of unorthodox, but you should go. Like one time my, my dog died and I went in just devastated. And he said, come back in two days. I thought, oh, that's like, oh, he's like, don't deal with, me. I don't want to like, you know, yeah. came back and turns out in over those two days, he read a book about grieving <laughs> 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 so that he could help me grieve. And
1: watched a peanut special just for, <laughs> just for good measure. So when you were 16 or 17, so what junior year of high school, you, you get a different set of friends and what are those? Well, are those I got artsy- kicked
0: out of school in my house. Oh, for what? Because, well, I realized that there was part, like you could go to parties and stuff. Uh-huh. Like when, once I got my car and I didn't. Probably drank five or six times and got caught five or six times every time. And so my parents kind of getting brought up in the church just assumed that I had a problem. So I got, and I did get kicked out of school for a fight and it was like a third offense kind of a thing. Was this a public high school? Yeah. Wow. And so my bad kid, I wasn't, I was just outspoken. Yeah. I had, you know, like, uh, that after school detention, Mm -hmm. right? I went and went in there and it turned out that that day it was a substitute. That was running the, it was usually the wrestling coach. And now it's this guy. So I went in and signed my name and just took off because he doesn't know who I am. He's not going to run, you know. And uh, turns out, though, that the vice principal had gone in looking for me to reschedule a Saturday school that I had missed. Like I was definitely getting in trouble, but I wasn't a bad kid. And they were like, oh, he signed in, but he's not here. And so the next day, my math teacher, Miss Porter, the whole class sits down and she goes, Nick, how was detention yesterday? And I'm just like, great. She goes, what'd you do? I was like, oh, a little math, some English. And she goes, you're a liar. This is in front of the whole class. And I just looked at her and I said, you're a bitch. Ooh. And then she was like, you're out. And that's when the principal's like, listen, man, you can't be here anymore. And I was like, she, call, she called me, like she couldn't have pulled me aside and not played some weird trick on me to lie, like fish for a lie. I ended up apologizing to her like years later and, and she's very, we've kept in touch a lot, but um. Yeah. And then I got sent to rehab because my parents thought that I had a problem because they caught me drinking five or six times. I'd smoke pot once. And when I got back, I just decided I didn't want to be at that school anymore because everybody was expecting this guy and my friends were this. And so I just went clean slate to another high school for my senior year. When you go
1: to rehab and your tact is, I don't have a problem, but since everyone else is saying that, but they do have a problem, is there any way for them to recognize that you actually maybe don't have a problem? No,
0: and that was me being, that turned out to me being sober for 12 years. Yeah? For my whole 20s. Just totally, you know, and halfway through, I didn't go to AA anymore because I didn't really feel the pull, but I actually- Did you go to
1: AA because you drank five times?
0: Yeah. No, when I got out of treatment, I I believed that I had a problem and I really enjoyed working on it. and. Basically, so now at 17 years old, I was smoking cigarettes and drinking coffee out of styrofoam cups, listening to 50 year old men who lost their families. And that was interesting to me, like learning about these people. And, and it gr- helped me grow up kind of fast and mm-hmm. also helped me not care about if my friends in high school liked me, because I kind of had now a whole nother world of adults that I could entertain and and stuff. It so was that fun. goes
1: back and answers my question. I thought you fell in with the artsy crowd. You fell in with the 50-year-old AA ch- <laughs> yeah. uh, church basement folding chair crowd. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. So then what does a person do if they realize they really weren't an alcoholic? Then you say, okay, I guess I can drink in moderation. Then it, do you do you become the sort of drinker that a responsible drinker is? Not uh, for a while. No. Wow. They <laughs> no. Made, So they made you an alcoholic. They
0: did. Well, my <laughs> wife, at one point we were just like, do you think I could drink? You know, she's like, well, I mean, we might as well try. And that's the one thing when you're sober, relapsing seems like the end of the world. Yeah. You know, but turns out it's actually not. Turns out you can actually kind of get your pants back on and fix yourself But again, if you or,
1: weren't an alcoholic in the first place, it's not relapsing. It's just relapsing. Yeah, but in that mind. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
0: But it was, I remember it was a margarita at El Compadre in Echo Park. And, less, <laughs> less, and I never went back. Just margaritas every day. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Do you drink in moderation now? uh some, sometimes yeah well that's <laughs> the definition of moderation oh wait you, so you're saying sometimes you drink an in moderation well i think sometimes you, know, you drink excess sometimes
0: it's pretty well I, I kind of put my head down and work really hard on something and then celebrate yeah and sometimes when i celebrate it's kind of uh hey maybe maybe you don't need to just like really blow it out every now and again you can just you know have a couple drinks and be good with that
1: when you first started doing stand-up were you more of an aggressive rat tat in your face comic the sort of person who well more than you are now which is extremely laid back not laconic or putting on a persona but extremely laid back
0: i think i was more laid back
1: more laid back
0: yeah and i was more um well i was less funny (laughs) and i I laid back and and also i think i was really stealing like five different people's kind of personas um without knowing it you know just really trying to like you know like this martin mole kind of Martin Mull, Stephen Wright, Zach Galifianakis, like, I guess three people, really. It's yeah. A little Steve Martin, but trying to be them.
1: So, I could, get, I could see the I could see the second two. I could definitely see the Stephen Wright, which is weird observations, talking very slow, but, like, really well-crafted jokes. I could see the Galifianakis, which is that, plus a beard and absurdity. But where's <laughs> the Martin Mull part? Just acknowledgement of your whiteness. Yeah, I think
0: also just cadence and, yeah. and kind of learning how to kind of really set back and... and and not need to get a laugh on every line, even, mm. even if what you think you just said was great. But
1: that's okay if you're co-hosting Fernwood tonight. But if you're a comic, how do you, you can't, you're okay with not getting a laugh on every line? That seems fraught.
0: I love silence. I love the silence of people wanting more and the silence of people that are invested in, in where you're taking them. Because sometimes if, if, it's, if it's silent, then they're interested you know, yeah. and then laugh isn't that far around the corner because I know where those are. And I know, especially if I really want to get one and if I sometimes want to throw one out, because sometimes throwing a laugh out, it it's a weird pride of like, I don't I don't need that one. You know, like I'm going to build and then it can even build up the next one to be bigger.
1: Is it any different when you're playing uh, for a crowd where your name is on the bill and they came to see you versus you are doing something at the comedy cellar? Maybe the people there don't even know you. You're one
0: of eight. Oh, yeah. Yeah, but it can get pretty lazy if you're just playing in front of people that that know you. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, this the bit that I'm doing in the Tonight Show's got to be five minutes. It's a nine or ten minute bit, and that nine or ten minutes really works when it's my audience. You know, and sometimes if it's not, then I'll throw a couple parts out that are a little asides that I know people want to hear me do. You know, but really the four and a half, I realized this, and I was telling the producer, I said the frustrating thing is. It, it, the four and a half minute bit is probably the way it should be. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But the 10 minute part of it, I love doing because I, I don't know. You say little things that color the story but really aren't needed for the ultimate goal.
1: Right. Right. It's less economical, but sometimes the joy in a performance isn't economy. Mm-hmm. You know? What about the guitar? Have you gone away from that? Used to, used to yeah. s- be this be, be a singing comic. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. The, well, this crutch? special, it didn't, I didn't have it in the special and then uh, Two weeks beforehand, I tried it for this one bit, and it really fit with this character this of a youth pastor that I'm doing. Oh, cool. So I thought that, I was like, you know what, because I did actually f- have this pride, like, I don't want it at all. No guitar this time, which I'm glad I did. I mean, it really kind of, I like it so much more, performing without the guitar. It's 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 freeing, and and also it felt good to just kind of... I think there are some people that probably thought like, oh, that, he can't do it without it. Oh, I'm and, sure other comics oh, are really yeah. snooty about that. And so it was kind of fun to turn around and say, eh, yeah, I can. Yeah. I can do that.
1: Also, as a road comic, not having to schlep that thing.
0: Yeah. Mostly. Oh, <laughs> believe me. That was part of the reason. You have to check it every time, mm-hmm. right? And no. that's, you know, No, you, you don't have to, to it. check it. Oh, okay. But the thing about carrying a guitar through the airport is... Everybody is trying to tell you that you can't get it on the plane. Every <laughs> level that you go you that. to. Yeah. It, but And you just smile. I've learned that you just smile and nod. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And then when you get to the gate, hey, you got you to gate check that. Oh, okay. Give me a tag. Put the tag in your pocket. Walk down. And the people on the plane are like, there's plenty of room. Yeah. They're and, the only ones that know.
1: Except that one time when the last stewardess is Miss Porter. And she <laughs> calls you out.
0: I felt so bad about that. Oh, my God. she. I think she also. I mean, you know. To call a kid a liar in front of the whole class is also... It kind of is a bitchy thing to do.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Then again, you signed in and you ditched. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You did to them what the neighbor boys did to you.
0: (laughs) I did. Nick Thune's special,
1: Good Guy, is on CISO right now. Thanks, Nick. Thank you. And now the spiel. Today on the Hill, there were two hearings. Well, one was more of a rapid-fire shouting... There was Treasury pick Steve Mnuchin trying to answer Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown's questions. Is it true that community groups say that One West foreclosed on 60,000 families nationwide and denied three-fourths of mortgage, mortgage modification applications? I am. I am not aware of that. I know they've objected. Well, they to did. A they bunch did. Okay. Is it oh, true? Well, if, if you know they did, then why, well, because I want. You you to,
0: I want to hear it from you. If you don't know it, well, that tells I don't me have something it in front too. of me. I, I'm, no. I'm going to keep interrupting because we no. don't have a no. lot of time. No. I apologize if you see that as rude, but this is. I don't. This, this is it the rude. people's that's business. Okay. Thank is you.
1: it true that one West regulators, that's the OCC, said that you had deficient mortgage practices, foreclosed on ten thousand plus borrowers without proper procedure, and at least twenty three who were current on their mortgages. So what I would say is we followed the same procedure yes no? that the, FDIC, Did the OCC say that, that the FDIC followed. We inherited the FDIC yes, the OCC procedures. Now, to be fair, Brown was tasked with an important job. He had a tight time frame and coming before the committee, Mnuchin was almost a blank slate. Actually, it was maybe more of a blank sheet of paper, you know, that parts of his disclosure form where he was supposed to disclose a hundred million dollars in real estate assets that he failed to disclose. He also forgot to list his position as a director of a Cayman Islands holding corporation. He did disclose his role as head of a bank that foreclosed on tons of families, putting out moms and kids, specifically one mom with lots of kids. The most troubling loan we had was actually to the Octomom. Okay. And we worked very, very hard. That was a terrible situation. And we worked very, very hard uh, to to move her to another home that, uh, that that they could afford. Okay. So that's all Mnuchin's past. It was well known. He answered the senator's questions about it. It was the sort of thing they have to take him to task over. And they did. And I think he can surmount it. But then there were real questions about what Mnuchin believed. If he bought into some of the more fanciful tales his future boss says he believes. Would you agree that your new boss is famous for
0: firing people?
1: Well, he has a show about it, but other than the show. Do you think, well, sometimes we have, it's a blurred line at this point. We're not sure where the show stops and where the reality begins. Mnuchin seems more reality-based than his reality star boss. He did offer rosier numbers for policies he favors, uh, like how much could be repatriated if there was a tax holiday, and he exaggerates the cost for some policies he opposes. But, for instance, on a day when Trump caused the dollar to lose value... Mnuchin bucked up the greenback in a way generally in keeping with the mainstream of fiscal thought, says he believes in a strong dollar. And he was less gung-ho about dismantling Dodd-Frank and the Volcker rule than a lot of Republican members of Congress are, and even injected a note of caution about privatizing Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. Stocks in those companies today fell a bit as a result of what Mnuchin said. Of course, the market, which loves the idea of privatization, has bid those stocks up as high as 400%. And it should be noted, Trump may very well invest in large hedge fund holdings that include those stocks. He has not disclosed if he's divested in his hedge funds. Anyway, that's Trump. This was his finance guy. He got filleted on his past, but held a line on his ideas about the future. Rick Perry, on the other hand, up as Secretary of Energy, has disavowed his most infamous remark. He now says the department to which he has been appointed should not be abolished. Because then where would he sit? But Perry was charming in a mostly frictionless hearing, and he engaged in some self-deprecation.
0: Governor, you have talked about pursuing an all-of-the-above energy strategy. And uh, as Senator Stabenow uh, just mentioned, and of course, I also am aware that just this morning, we learned that the Trump transition team intends to propose eliminating the Department of Energy's Office of Energy Efficiency and Renewable Energy and make other massive cuts to your department. It's hard to see how we can pursue an all-of-the-above strategy if so much of the departments, all-of-the-above capabilities are eliminated. My question is, do you support these cuts? Yes or no?
1: Well, Senator, maybe they'll have the same experience I had and forget that they uh, said that. But
0: uh... <laughs> We're counting
1: on you. <laughs> that was Murray Hirano of Hawaii. To continue with the non-contiguousness, here's Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. Folks here at the committee know that I have a set of principles that are pretty easy. It's affordable, accessible, clean, diverse, and secure. There's no acronym there. It is in alphabetical order so that we remember it all. I can help Senator Murkowski. If you add environmental and compostable, you get cascade. It spells cascade. You're welcome. It didn't seem Perry said much of anything to earn opposition by any members of the committee. Though, if he did, he would not give a damn. Not even a specific kind of damn. People who really don't much give a tinker's damn about either political party. The Practical Dictionary of Mechanics, 1877, has this definition. Tinker's dam a wall of dough raised around a place which a plumber desires to flood with a coat of solder. The material can be used once being consequently thrown away as worthless. And that, by the way, does not satisfy three out of five of Lisa Murkowski's criteria. And that's it for today's show. Hey, listen to 90 Seconds with Slate if you have an Alexa. Oh, if you do, I just said Alexa. But we do this every day, and we give you some news about what's going on, and I really don't recycle the same jokes or insight. Anyway... That's it for today's show. Chris Berube does not give a Taylor's hoot what you think of his production skills. Mary Wilson doesn't give two pins about those things you were saying about fellow producer Chris Berube. But more than two pins, yeah, it begins to hurt a little. Steve Liktai doesn't give a flying tinker's fudge about critics of his tenure as executive producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers has no Fennec Fox given what you think about his highfalutin title, Chief Content Officer of the Panoply Network. The gist, we care, but we also know how to express care. It's all embodied in the give a rat's ass, take a rat's ass dish next to the cash register. de Peru, do peru, and thanks for listening.